You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to a long-awaited rooted discussion uh, edition of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and welcome to episode 156. And uh, I almost forgot how to do a rooted discussion. I know, it's been a while in- since intro. we did one of these, but um, I know just looking at our, our download chart, yep. we have had a pretty significant spike in new listeners the last month and a half two months so i do want to just give a little intro if you're newer to native plants healthy planet and whatever brought you here thank you for coming here one um but this is a show where you have two numbskulls who really don't know a lot about (laughs) native plants bring on people who know what they're talking about and uh and kind of explain it to us as if we were kindergartners um but all kidding aside we have a lot of fun doing these and this is one we've had uh on the docket for uh, quite a while now and we're really excited to talk about because it is uh, a really hot topic in the native plant world, and um, we get. I, I'd be lying if I I didn't if I if I said I I didn't get asked about it once a week. Yeah, by, yeah. By customers just inquiring and asking uh, if we knew anything or the status of what's going on. So yeah, but we have. I don't want to say we have limited time. We do have limited time in the sense of that the. We all have an end date at some point, but today we have uh, – <laughs> I want to make sure we can spend as much time on topic as we possibly can. So uh, we are joined by Sarah Fitzsimmons, Adriana Del Grasso, and Eric Carlson, and they are all involved with the American chestnut in some way, and we want to have a big chestnut conversation. So, uh, Adriana, why don't we start with you, and you give yourself a better introduction than I could possibly have ever ever given you, so – Sure. Uh, yeah, my name is Adriana Del Grosso. Um, I work at SUNY ESF. I am the tree distribution manager for the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project here at ESF. Um, it's kind of a funny title because we have produced a uh, light tolerant American chestnut uh, using genetic engineering, but we cannot distribute it just yet um, because it's still going through the federal regulatory review mm-hmm. process that most transgenic plants have to go through. So um, we cannot currently distribute our trees. So my position right now is mostly education and outreach and kind of like setting the stage for the first phases of distribution of our trees. Um, yeah, I'm the newest member of Chestnut World on here. <laughs> I just started working at uh, ESF. Uh, last February, so February of 2022, which in the scale of this project is fairly short. So, and yeah, and I so, do and want you to. There's a lot of things in there. I want you to clarify at some point. But the first one, and I know there's a lot of people who are going to be like, "Oh, who doesn't know about this?" Um, because many of our listeners went to SUNY ESF. But what does SUNY ESF stand for? Where is it? Oh, yes. and, and that whole yeah. thing. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so the title gets even longer. It is the (laughs) State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. So it is a a small college in the SUNY system located in Syracuse, New York, uh, with programs focusing on natural resource management and forestry. Um, Yeah, the student body is, I think, 
I don't want to say, I don't want to say a wrong number. Eric, maybe you know better than I do, but like around a thousand something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think around 3000 students okay. total. Okay. Which is impressive. Like I, I mentioned, I know there's quite a few of our listeners that went to SUNY ESF. There's a lot of our, customers. a lot of our guests went to SUNY yes. ESF. Um, even some that I did not realize went there when we did their little intro, they're like, Oh yeah, I went to SUNY ESF and, so there's a lot of ties between this podcast and SUNY ESF, even though neither of us went there. Yeah. <laughs> so, but thank you. And um, so, Sarah, why don't we kick it over to you? Why don't, can you introduce yourself for for our listeners? Sure. I'm Sarah Fitzsimmons. I'm the Chief Conservation Officer for the American Chestnut Foundation. Um, and so the American Chestnut Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that has been working on uh, restoration of the American Chestnut. This is our 40th anniversary uh, we've been working closely with ESF for many of those years. Um, I've been with uh, Chestnut Research for 22 years, wow. so a little bit on the opposite end of the spectrum. And I actually work at Penn State University. So um, what I love about my job and the American Chestnut Foundation is just all of the different collaborators and partners and groups of people that I get to work with, nurseries, pi- private landowners, um, at academic institutions, NGOs, uh, you name it, um, you know, we need as many people working together to make this happen as possible. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, and Eric, we'll finish with you. Um, I see you're still at SUNY ESF. So. I'm, I am paying attention. I'm just writing down tons of questions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just in your bios. <laughs> like, oh, there's a lot to talk oh, about here. Okay. So. Yeah, I'm Sorry. Eric Carlson. I'm a, I'm a grad student at SUNY ESF. Um, this is actually my seventh year here. I started as a master's student back in 2016, um, and I graduated a couple years after that with my master's, and now I'm a PhD student, and I'm at the end of that program. I kind of uh, do a lot of different things for the project, uh, kind of wear a lot of different hats. Um, I'm big into um, plant propagation, so stuff like grafting and tissue culture and stuff. Um, but my main focus is more on the molecular biology side. So dealing with DNA and RNA and proteins and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I, I'm involved in different parts of the project. Another thing that I enjoy uh, is scientific communication coming on podcasts and interviews and stuff like that and talking about our work. Well, we're, we're really excited to hear about everyone's work and, you know, with something so massive as this discussion, it, it's always where do you start? And it's I, I started thinking about it that my kids don't know what a chestnut tree is. They don't know what's happened to it. It's, um, you know, it, it's far enough. This issue has happened in the past that, you know, I, I I could talk to a lot of my I and I have asked a lot of my my kids' friends who are in their twenties you know, what they know about it and they know nothing about it. You know, they, they don't even know that it, how dominant it was and what happened to it and that it's trying to make a comeback. They don't know the story at all. So I yeah. thought maybe that would just be a good place to start. I know many of our listeners already know. Um, yeah. Well, I, I would even speculate that a lot of people's only people today, their only experience with uh, chestnut in any way is through Christmas carols. Chestnuts roasting on it. Maybe you guys know better than I do, but that's like really. I think a lot of people. That's maybe the only time they've even heard that that word. So, so I don't. You know, I'm just going to throw it out. It doesn't matter who wants to to kick it off, but if if someone 
would just like to go over the history of the American chestnut a little bit or collaborate on that, I, I would love that. I guess I can start. Um, so the American chestnut uh, was a very important native tree species on the eastern uh, eastern part of North America, going from uh, the southern part of Canada all the way down into Georgia. So it had a wide range on the east coast. Uh, it was a very important uh, tree ecologically. It produced a reliable nut crop that was uh, used to sustain wild populations of all types of animals. Uh, the expression is from bees to bears, everything from the smallest life forms all the way up to the largest uh, relied on the tree in many cases. And uh, it was prized by Native Americans who actually uh, did active forest management to encourage and increase the American chestnut populations throughout the range. And when uh, European uh, colonists came to the United States, uh, they also had a history of chestnuts from back in Europe. And they also prized the American chestnut for its nuts and its wood. And, uh, and everything was going great until uh, in around uh, the end of the 1800s, a foreign fungal pathogen was brought to the United States on non-native Asian chestnut tree species which made the jump from those resistant Asian species onto non-resistant, naive American chestnut species. And uh, this is a very familiar story. This has happened with many different species of plants and pathogens. The pathogen burned through the entire population of the American chestnut, uh, killing almost all of the mature trees and uh, reducing the rest to little stump sprouts that persist in the understory and right now we consider the American chestnut was called functionally extinct. So it's not actually completely extinct. It's still out there in the forest, but it's at the point where it's unable to grow to maturity and reproduce and uh, to regenerate. And so for that reason, it's in the category of functional extinction. Do what, and I, I know times change. So even if it hadn't, gone functionally extinct it it you know we obviously don't have the same amount of forests that we did 100 years ago like what what percentage did it make up of of forests on the east coast like is there a a, a rough idea like was it 40 percent of the forest 50 percent of the forest? like how dominant was this tree along the east coast for importance value this is a great question because uh there's a lot of um, misunderstanding about the actual uh, dominance of the species itself. It's kind of been uh, romanticized a bit since it was actually lost. So it's true that it was a very uh, common tree throughout the range. And in many places, it could be considered dominant, but it wasn't this uh, homogeneous uh, 40% all the way across the entire range. There was patches of uh, places uh, where the tree was more common and places where it was more sparse. But uh, it it did make up a very large percent. I don't know if I could actually put a percent on okay. like the entire forest, but uh, you know, it could range from just a few individual trees to almost pure stands, uh, depending on where you are. And I, I think Sarah would probably have a better 
idea of exactly where those were, but uh, it wasn't this uh, myth that a squirrel could jump from tree to tree from Maine all the way to George on American chestnuts. That doesn't seem to be the case. These, it's it's nice to think that, but it was yeah. just just trying to put like obviously it's important for mass. Did we and and this happened before we were probably cataloging this, but you know throughout time we just continually keep losing more trees we've lost elm trees we're losing ash tree um do we know what effect it had on wildlife losing that mast i know obviously when you lose something something else comes to prominence but maybe it doesn't have the same wildlife benefits as what it's replacing do we do we know how that affected just the the food web so we, we have a few we have a few examples and so you're right that when the chestnut was lost it uh, a lot of scientific knowledge was kind of in its infancy especially forestry and forest ecology but uh, there have been some long standing studies in the Coweta basin in western north carolina and some other locations where we do have some long standing uh data about mass production and uh there was a study done at virginia tech by diamond et al who showed that uh, while oak is the prominent replacer, replacement uh, species for American chestnut, um, they we have been unable to gain upwards of 25% of mass production that mm. chestnut gave us over and above what oak gives us. And that's a lot due to um, chestnuts typically uh, produce uh, mast sooner in, in their age. They typically produce much more um, copious nut crops annually, whereas uh, oaks tend to be uh, well known as being cyclical in, in production. And it's not that chestnuts aren't cyclical, but th- they do tend to go up and down in, in terms of production, but they tend to be very consistent um, in terms of getting pretty good nut crops to boom crops to pretty good, you know. So um, I think chestnut was a really great provider of hard mast. Um, it's the we have not been able to prove or there's no data to prove that any species went extinct necessarily because of American chestnut. You know, going back, we don't know what insects may have been completely dependent on American chestnut at that time. Uh, there was a recent rediscovery of a chestnut bee out on the Patuxet Sound in Maryland. So that's a really cool discovery. They That species was thought extinct um, and has been rediscovered. And a lot of uh, folks have attributed the decline of the Allegheny wood rat to the decline in American chestnut population. So there are these examples of populations. Some people have um, attributed the decline of the passenger pigeon somewhat to chestnut. Obviously, a lot of that was hunting and, and some other issues as well. So I think chestnut played a role in these other issues for, in, in decline of the greater food web. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be any specific, you know, extinction of something else that was absolutely dependent on American chestnut. And I know it's hard to say how that would change over time as well. We're seeing in New Jersey just oaks, which mast, maybe it's not a bumper every year or every other year, but we're starting to see less and less mast on oaks. There are certain oaks this year that didn't produce any, like uh, scarlet oak and and, uh, quirks bicolor. Certain oaks just – we're just seeing – you're not seeing seed for Mm -hmm. for multiple, multiple years, so – um, I can imagine yeah. how important that consistent crop was. Yeah, and just I, I think people can read between the lines here, but just for clarification, what does mast mean? And I'll even give bonus points if people know where the the term came from. 
I don't know what the, where the term yeah. came from. I, I, I didn't know either. Myself. I just looked it up. I know it's it means uh, food for for wildlife. I believe is the definition. Yeah. And there's hard, hard yeah. mass like chestnuts mm-hmm. and nuts, and there's soft mass like fruits and and berries and things like that. But yeah, so that's yeah, uh, basically what it is. I, I believe the annual mass of the American chestnut is thought to be due to the fact that it flowers later than related species like oaks. So that's uh, their mass quantity is less likely to be affected by things like a late season frost. And now that we're getting more erratic springs, I wonder if that has something to do with the decline in mass of oaks yeah, and it, other species. Interesting. It's quite possible, it's all, it, yeah. It's also just a completely different reproductive strategy between the two different Mm -hmm. uh, types of trees. So like with oaks, the way that they cycle their masting is thought to actually control the herbivore populations that feed on those acorns. So instead of having lots of nuts every year to support like a large herbivore population, there will be years where it's reduced so that population goes down. So they're not eating all the nuts to to be uh, grown. And then they'll have a massing year where they'll overwhelm those reduced mm-hmm. herbivore populations, and then they'll have a better luck of seedlings being produced by those nuts. Versus the American chestnut is just trying to overwhelm every single year. It's trying to outproduce those herbivores' consumption every single year. So it's just a completely different reproductive strategy. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm yeah. even curious if they're doing that to outcompete other trees in the forest to, to have a better, better yeah. survivability rate. But anyway, according to Wikipedia, the word comes from the old English word, which meant nuts of the forest floor that have accumulated on the ground, which so it's pretty literal. <laughs> it's, it's, that's, yeah, you guys got it. Um, you heard it here first. Yeah. So, um, go ahead, Tom. Oh, no, I was, I was like I said, I sometimes I think to myself, I'm like, oh, if I didn't know what that word meant, I would be really confused right now. So that's why I just want to stop and clarify just for uh, maybe I'm. No, I appreciate it. Wrong things, How but. many times have we been asked to to say common names because we start oh, yeah. just spouting yeah, botanicals? Yeah. But were there along the route that it took after we started losing trees to blight? Were there missteps taken along the way in handling chestnut? <laughs> I, I I see smiles in handling uh, the way the blight was handled or chestnuts as as we were losing them. Like throughout history, were there things that looking back could have been handled differently? I I wouldn't say there were missteps per se. I just it was like a misunderstanding probably of what we were really up against. Um, this is one of my favorite pieces of of the chestnut story. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to restoration, and that's super exciting. But I think the progression of what people went through. Um, I'm, I'm in Pennsylvania and, and it was the first state to really do anything about chestnut in 1911. And all of this is online. So you can go to Google, you can read the entire proceedings from 1911 to 1914 of the Pennsylvania chestnut blight commission. Some light reading for, for this evening for you all. Um, beautiful pictures. Uh, you know, basically they threw $250,000 at this pro- problem trying to stop the progression of the blight. Um, they did cut down a bunch of trees trying to do like a, a, a fire line, trying to keep the fungus from going across um, and also to salvage a lot of the dead trees. Um, and, and obviously they weren't successful or else we wouldn't be here today. Um, in the 30s, the USDA started breeding. They actually were the ones that brought Chinese chestnuts over. Um, if you're familiar with Frank Meyer of Meyer Lemon fame, they sent him over to China to bring chest, Chinese chestnuts back. And so... A lot of the chestnuts you see today are Chinese chestnuts imported 
through his work in the 30s and distributed by the USDA and lots of states, Department of Agriculture. Um, that obviously didn't work. Chinese chestnuts can't compete in our landscape. And so they didn't actually replace the American chestnut, which was the hope of the Department of Agriculture at that time. In the 50s, people were all about uh, nuclear radiation and mutational breeding, and they took chestnuts and they threw them down into nuclear reactors to try and get resistance to, to be propagated. And that didn't really work, although there are still nuclear mutated tra- trees out there. They're not glowing in the dark or they don't have fangs or anything, but they're still out there without resistance. Um, and then in the um, in the 80s, people were like, well, we give up. <laughs> and then, um, the American Chestnut Foundation started in 83. And I know um, the work at ESF with the New York chapter of TACF started about 1990. So that's sort of the modern era is is the 80s to early 90s of where we are today in, in trying to rescue the species. So be- yeah. and, um, oh, sorry. I think also when uh, the blight first started coming through, people started panicking uh, because they wanted to preserve the lumber from mm-hmm. these trees. So uh, they just cut down a lot of trees prematurely as well, uh, which probably led to a lot of loss of the genetic diversity mm-hmm. of the species that we could have today. I was curious if – before we go into the work that any of you are doing, is it is it safe to say that the chestnut blight is unbeatable? Like I know with with – let's just say elm, you know, one of the more popular uh, – varieties on the market is the Princeton Elm, and that was selected due to form, but it just happened to be DED resistant more so than others. Not saying that it can't eventually get DED or die off, but it just tended. I just just had us explain mast, and then you're going to go and say DED? Uh, Dutch Elm's disease. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. sorry, No, I'm just picking on you. So, you know, has there there been uh, one found that that was bionic and, and just could ward off uh, chestnut blight, it, like, was there any findings like that over time or a stand that was found that, that hadn't seemed untouched? Or is there anything that gave hope before any of we get into the work that any of you do? We get questions about that all the time. If there's naturally resistant American chestnuts and also along with what we were just talking about uh, with uh, all the trees that got cut down uh, in the initial uh, stages of invasion, were there any resistant trees in there? And the answer is probably not. And the reason why I say that is because resistance to blight is controlled by a whole suite of genes, like uh, probably dozens of genes. And the American chestnut is completely naive to this pathogen. It hasn't developed any of these, these resistance mechanisms. And when you look at even Chinese chestnut trees, which are probably considered the most resistant species, even they can have issues with this blight, even with quote unquote full resistance, they can still be killed by the blight. So keeping that in mind, when you look at the American species, that is completely naive, no natural selection for resistance. Uh, It's very likely that there's no resistance almost at all. That being said, we have found trees that are uh, slightly less susceptible is what we would say because it's all just a continuum and and we'll probably get into this more there's a continuum of resistance and some american chestnuts will die slower uh than other ones uh from the blight disease and some can actually persist a pretty long time they get really ugly cankers on them but uh 
yeah, as far as uh, some uh, resistant trees, some hope for resistance in pure American chestnut, I myself haven't seen it. I haven't seen the evidence for that, despite hearing about it for for a, a good amount of years. Uh, I haven't seen the evidence for resistance in just the pure American species. That's that's almost disheartening, <laughs> you know, because you, you always talk about, especially being in the field of restoration, you talk about genetic biodiversity, and you need you, you want everything grown from seeds so that hopefully you have things that are more resistant or less resistant or I, I guess that's why you talk about biodiversity in, in, in nature and restoration so that you don't have a monoculture that can completely disappear. Um, but that doesn't mean the story's over. Like you would think, all right, that's bleak, that's bad. But that it doesn't end. And, and this is where – why all of you are here and this is where the story kind of begins again. And so I guess where where's the best place to start with that? Like over time, obviously people wanted to save the chestnut, but as far as – the modern day work that's being done. Where does that begin? Well, I'll start with the American Chestnut Foundation because I think that you know that leads into the work that ESF has done and and the um, advances that they have, which is which have been incredibly successful. Um, so uh, the American Chestnut Foundation started in 1983 with some traditional breeding uh, to try and take uh, specifically a. a, a project called backcross breeding, which is a traditional plant breeding technique. Um, and that was done with the assumption that blight resistance is uh, simply inherited. And as we just heard from Eric, that's not the case. But they didn't know that. They didn't know that in the early 80s. Um, so they, they proceeded on a 40 to what they knew would be a 40 to 50 year project thinking, well, let's let's try this traditional breeding technique to bring uh, resistance from the Chinese chestnut into the American and um, the American Chestnut Foundation did that um, for now 40 plus years. Um, and uh, as Eric said, uh, because resistance is so complicated, because blight resistance is so complicated, it was much more difficult than originally hypothesized to bring together resistance from Chinese chestnut into that American background. Um, what we have done, though, is uh, preserved uh, over 300 to 400 uh, wild American lines from across the eastern U.S., from Maine to Georgia. We've got um, several uh, – we've captured um, a good percentage of the wild-type American diversity already in that breeding program. We've got some resistance from the Chinese chestnut for blight. We've got some resistance also to another deadly pathogen called Phytophthorus and Amomi, which uh, causes root rot and ink rot. Um, so that that was really significant um, and, and is what we're working on, um, improving that resistance that's already there and also incorporating that in with the work that ESF has done with the transgenic tree. Um, I'll throw one more um, project in there, which doesn't get a whole lot of information, and I don't necessarily think it it's, it's a silver bullet. Um, but uh, there's also some work ongoing to try and make the fungus sick. So I do believe the fungus is unbeatable there's nothing that will get rid of it or that will make it go away or or kill it in its entirety um but there are things out there that that can lessen its virulence and hypovirulence is a technique or um a process by which the fungus gets infected by a virus and so there is some opportunity to explore that it doesn't work incredibly well yet, and that would be a whole other podcast, but I did want to mention well, that. It's funny because um, that's what I just wrote down to ask. 
<laughs> and I, I, you know, along those lines, though, too, are are there other hosts for the blight? Like other than Chinese chestnuts, is there anything else that's hosting it? Um, like domestic, so, yeah, domestically. Yeah, so so oaks are a reservoir, a small reservoir, and it tends to um, hang out in the butts of scarlet oak. And there's one documented case, there may be others, but there's one documented case in North Carolina of a post-oak dying from chestnut blight infection. But for the most part, the reservoir are the dead and dying American chestnuts and then all the Chinese chestnuts that are out there. Because, you know, the first thing, like not really knowing the first thing I thought of, well, are there places you can just plant them where the pathogen doesn't exist that they could survive? I mean, out west, out west. So so Washington, Oregon – California, they have the biggest American chestnuts, and there's still a few persisting in the Midwest. If the blight gets there, they will die, but you can still see very large American chestnuts that have escaped. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was um, a, a big part of the premise of the book, uh, The Overstory by Richard Powers, was a, an immigrant brought chestnuts from New York to Iowa, and because there weren't any other chestnuts around, that was... Uh, it didn't get past. Friend, you weren't paying attention when I reviewed that book on our, our podcast, were you? <laughs> but. Just my filing cabinets are a little messy and <laughs> yeah. I couldn't pull that one out. <laughs> um, so, so I'm sorry, Sarah, were you going to say something? Oh, I was just, I was just going to say, I, I think that, that that can that can set up. I know when, when the Chestnut Foundation started with the traditional breeding program, um, that was what prompted um, the, the New York uh, chapter to approach ESF mm-hmm. and say, hey, is there a different way of doing this? You know, these guys have the breeding program. What else can be done uh, as an approach? And and that's when that started. So yeah. th- that's a perfect segue. So we're well, I was going to say, Adriana, how yeah. how does your organization fit into this and how do you fit in the whole uh, chestnut picture? Yeah, so uh, our project at ESF, as Sarah said, started about three decades ago when some of the founding members of the New York chapter of the American Chestnut Foundation uh, approached the uh, a couple faculty members here at ESF, um, Dr. Charles Maynard and Dr. Bill Powell, um, and asked them about the possibility of producing a blight-tolerant American chestnut using genetic engineering. Uh, so they started that process, uh, and like three decades later, now we have a tree uh, that is blight tolerant uh, that was successfully transformed uh, using genetic engineering. So, yeah, these trees uh, that we have at ESF are uh, referred to as Darling 58, um, named after the founding president of the New York chapter of the American Chestnut Foundation. Uh, and these trees were produced using a gene from wheat. Uh, that confers blight tolerance. Um, the gene is called oxalidoxidase, and it uh, gives the trees the ability to break down toxins created by the fungus that causes the blight. So these trees are blight tolerant, uh, which is important. So they can coexist with the blight, um, which reduces evolutionary selection pressure. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've kind of produced a tree that can live with the blade, it coexists with it. The blade can still uh, complete its life cycle on these trees, so we're not accidentally breeding a super fungus. So yeah. no way. Yes, <laughs> you've kind of yeah, yeah. accepted that like the blade is unbeatable, so we've uh, made a tree that can coexist with it. Mm-hmm. Oh, awesome. Yeah, uh, and, and Adriana, there's um, a term you used in your, your intro, and I think you might have used it again here. 
um, but transgenic. And you, yes. you kind of explained a little bit, you're taking a gene from wheat. So transgenic is basically just, it's a gene that would not exist otherwise in that species, correct? Yeah, so okay. a transgenic organism is an organism that has been uh, changed genetically so that it contains mm-hmm. a gene from another species, um, which is something that plants kind of do naturally sometimes, mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> interestingly enough. Yeah. Um, the technology that we use to transfer genes into the American chestnut is called an agrobacterium-mediated gene transfer which is a big fancy term. Oh, that is a big fancy term. I like that one. (laughs) Something that uh, occurs naturally. So Agrobacterium tumefaciens is an organism that lives in the soil that causes crown gall disease. And it does that by inserting a little bit of its DNA into the DNA of an organism of a plant that it infects. Uh, And somewhere along the line, scientists learned that you can put your gene of interest into the genome of the agrobacterium and it can transfer that gene into the plant for you. So kind of taking this natural process and then recreating it in a lab. That is so incredibly fascinating. And I wonder, I always wonder how many people out there are like just so much smarter than I could ever even dream of being. And that's, that's another example of someone who's just like on a completely other level. And I want to go back to this, but before we get too far down the rabbit hole, I, yeah. I want to yeah. hear how Eric's work ties in. One question for you, Adriana, real quick though, and of course it just escaped my mind right as I was saying. Oh, you you were saying at the start that you're waiting for approval, government approval. What's the process that it's going through, and why does it need to be approved? Right. So uh, several U.S. regulatory agencies are reviewing our trees because they are transgenic. Um, most transgenic plants and other organisms have to go through this process just to verify that they uh, are not considerably different than the non-transgenic versions of mm-hmm. those organisms. So the uh, regulatory agencies that we're working with are the USDA, the EPA, and the FDA. Um And the USDA is the most consequential of those reviews, uh, reviewing the uh, environmental impacts of releasing transgenic American chestnuts. So we're working with them uh, to study our trees compared to uh, chestnuts produced using traditional breeding methods, uh, just to verify that they are... um, yeah, not too dissimilar okay. mm-hmm. from those trees in the environment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we're expecting to hear back from the USDA about a decision by fall of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing's quite set in stone yet. This has been kind of a, a long process because this is the first time that a transgenic tree for restoration purposes has gone through the review process by these agencies. Mm-hmm. Like Usually genetic engineering is associated with agricultural yeah. crops oh, yeah. uh, that grow annually. So it's a, a different kind of like mm-hmm. cycle um, and a different sort of management methods that this tree will be used for. So yeah. No, that is like a really fascinating rabbit hole that I just wrote down a whole bunch yeah. of questions and I'm <laughs> hoping we have time to get to too. So now, Eric, why don't you tell us how do you fit into this whole puzzle? 
Uh, well, I am working on developing the new generations of transgenic American chestnuts. So uh, Darling 58 is uh, one of the points in the research development of these trees. And, uh, it, and it's the first one that we've decided to move forward with to go through the regulatory process. But we're not done uh, doing research here and, and developing these uh, techniques and this technology and further refining it in the American chestnut. So what my work is focusing on is developing new genes and, uh, and new ways to express those genes within the American chestnut. So uh, that was going to be one of my questions. Like it, it's just unreal the technology exists to do some of these things. But when it was starting out, how much – how much of this technology didn't even exist yet to to do some of this work? Like how long did we have to wait to get to the point where your dreams could be met with what was available in technolo- technological advances? Yes. So when this first started back in 1990, this was kind of the, the dawn of genetic engineering in plants. And it was around this time that the first uh, – agricultural companies were developing their genetically engineered plants. And that's kind of where the the founders of the New York chapter of TACF uh, got this idea. They saw the development of these biotechnologies in agriculture, and they said, what if we applied this technology to the American chestnut? And so from that starting point, you had to develop the whole system to deliver the genes into the plants themselves. And the first step of that is developing what's called a tissue culture process. And tissue culture is a way to grow plants in sterile conditions, in uh, auger media. So it's like growing plants in a Petri dish um, with no uh, contaminants uh, and and nothing else, just uh, solid, basically gel media. And it took about 20 years to really develop that tissue culture process um, before we could start actually inserting genes into the American chestnut. So it took 20 years from 1990 till then. In the meantime, we had to actually develop what genes we wanted to put in there. And it, it's one thing to know how to put genes into a plant. It's another to know what are the right genes that you want to use. And luckily, since the, the late 70s, there had been this research on something that Sarah mentioned called hypovirulence. What hypovirulence is, is a viral infection of the fungus that is infecting the tree. So it's kind of a three-step thing. So it's a little bit complicated, but this virus makes the fungus sick, and then the fungus is less able to kill the tree. And so they really investigated why that happens. And uh, one of the preeminent scientists in chestnut world, her name is Sanjay Anagnostakis, she discovered that these sickened fungal strains produce less oxalic acid. And when they discovered that, they made the connection that other fun- fungi, pathogenic fungi, use this oxalic acid to attack plants, and they realized this must be how the blight fungus is attacking chestnuts. And so fast forward to 20 years later, uh, here at ESF, we're developing these uh, gene delivery techniques. My boss, 
uh, Dr. Bill Powell was reading through a book of scientific abstracts, and he read about these plants that were being transformed with a gene called oxalate oxidase, which is an enzyme that breaks down that oxalic acid, and it was giving resistance to other fungi in other plants. And this was what he would call his eureka moment when he said, we should really look into this gene because now we know that the blight fungus is attacking the trees with oxalic acid. Maybe this enzyme could work. So then we put it all together, the tissue culture process, the new gene of interest, and we, and we got transgenic American chestnuts containing that oxalate oxidase. We call it OXO for short, containing that OXO gene. And after... Uh, several iterations of trying to get this gene in and developing new plants, it was confirmed that the plants that express this enzyme uh, have heightened resistance to, to the blight fungus infection. And the really beautiful part about this gene that Adriana mentioned is that the gene itself doesn't kill the fungus. It's just detoxifying the acid that the fungus produces. So the fungus doesn't get killed by the tree. And so the fungus can uh, grow and produce spores and reproduce on the tree um, without having to develop a mechanism to overcome that gene because it's not being killed. And that reduces the chances that the fungus is going to evolve resistance to the tree's resistance. And uh, so that's how Darling 58 was developed. Darling 58 contains that OXO gene and it has high levels of resistance. That's fascinating yeah right. how, do, how do you even i guess what as you're telling that story i'm just thinking that you have someone or multiple people who are dedicating in many cases probably the majority of their career into something just to see it, maybe it'll work and how much patience that takes and i'm sure there's a lot of failure that comes with that that you have to overcome uh mentally just trial and error and trial and error and just to even think of things on that level is uh, I don't know, just really fascinating. Right. I want to be a kid because yeah. I have a ton of questions okay. about Darling 58. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> so do we know uh, – I'm just thinking past that at this point. So what is the – the how big is the most mature Darling 58 that, that you have? So the most mature trees we have, the oldest ones, were planted in 2017. Okay. I'd say they're probably around 12 feet tall okay. at this point. And uh, the first one, uh, the the oldest one last year produced the first female flowers of any Darling 58. So we're just reaching that sexually mature stage with I, the Darling 58s planted. Because I was curious, and I know when when you're dealing with, let's just say cultivars, the seed that's produced from that plant isn't going to produce necessarily that same cultivar. Yeah, it might not so have do, the same resistance and, and all that. Do we know but, at this point what the seed would contain from Darling 58 if it would contain those genes? That's actually one of the biggest advantages to this approach is the gene that was put into Darling 58 inherits like a dominant allele. So 50% of the offspring that are produced from Darling 58 contain that OXO gene, and most of them will be resistant. And it's it's possible over time as that adapts that it could become more resistant or or vary over time or will it always stay true to what it is? 
I guess that would probably depend on the the background of the trees that it's being crossed with. So as I mentioned before, there are some American chestnuts that have um, lower susceptibility to blight infection. So you could another way you could say that is they're slightly more resistant. So depending on the actual background of the trees, they could get little ups and downs in in the uh, the levels of resistance, and that's actually something that we will be selecting for as we as we proceed into the future. So, so as a nurseryman, I'm I'm thinking this because I was like, oh, it would be great if you could grow it from seed going forward. But as of now, to get when it gets approved and you can distribute these plants, how will they have to be propagated to get them out? To mass appeal, and is it difficult to propagate them in that in the manner of choosing? Yeah. So, so I'm sorry. Uh, Go ahead. One, one important step in this process is because only fifty percent of the offspring of a darling fifty eight tree uh, inherit the gene for blight tolerance. We have to test each nut that is mm-hmm. produced uh, for the activity of this gene and so we could say that yes this is a blight tolerant nut um this is in fact a darling 58 tree because if it is not expressing that gene then it is not a darling 58 chestnut so uh yeah that's a that's a pretty tedious process right now that we do in the lab um testing each nut uh yeah eventually we would like to automate that or eventually have trees that have copies of the gene so they're uh 100% of the offspring of those trees inherit the gene. Um, but yeah, that, that would be the first step to getting the trees out there is uh, testing the nuts for activity of the gene. Um, yeah, no, that that was actually going to be yeah. um, one of the things I was going to ask is how do you tell if, like, I'm sh- assuming the nuts would probably all look the same when they're on the ground. How do you know which ones, if 50% are, are resistant, do you just plant and hope you have something, or is it but it's nice to know that you can actually test for that that um, that lineage. So, um, can I add something to that? Oh yeah, yeah of course. Please. So chestnut, uh, American chestnut in particular, but chestnut in general is a very difficult tree to propagate. It's not something that you can take like a cutting yeah. from and root it and grow into a tree. The main way to asexually propagate is with grafting, which is very tedious. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's also tissue culture, which is something that we've kind of innovated here at SUNY ESF. But again, that's extremely tedious and expensive to reproduce, to propagate that way. And so we found that the best way to propagate is actually with nuts. Mm-hmm. And we'll take our transgenic trees and we will, um, we will get them to produce pollen in growth chambers. And then we can collect that pollen and then go and pollinate trees in designated field sites to produce nuts. And that's mm-hmm. actually the most economical way to, to propagate it is through nuts versus using grafting, tissue culture, yeah. or other asexually propagated methods. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. Oh, uh, so yeah, a lot of varieties of plants that are available horticulturally are just clones of the same plant, uh, mm-hmm. and that's not what you want from a tree for restoration purposes. So uh, it would be convenient to distribute a lot of cloned trees, knowing that they all are blight tolerant. 
um, that they all have the same level of blight tolerance, but that's not what you want from like a healthy population of uh, trees out in the forest. So we're actually trying to maximize genetic diversity by taking advantage of the fact that this gene is inherited and then outcrossing the trees that we have now to unrelated American chestnuts so that, yes, we can get those nuts so we could efficiently produce more seedlings. Um, but yeah, also just so we have the most genetically diverse, resilient population of these trees possible. Yeah. And that was actually leads me into something else I was going to ask. And that was how genetically similar are, are they clones? If all the darling, uh, darling 58, right. If they were all identical genetically, but it sounds like that's not the case. Darling 58 just refers that it has that, that gene. That protects it. So we did start out with just one transformation event. So mm-hmm. one, so the, uh, tissue was taken from one tree called Ellis one, um, and then it was transformed. Uh, the gene OXO was inserted into that tree, and then we referred to that transformation event uh, as Darling fifty eight. So that was mm-hmm. the original Darling fifty eight tree, and we have been working for years since that first transformation was done to outcross that tree to unrelated American chestnuts in order to increase genetic diversity. And um, TACF has geneticists that they work with who've like mapped out um, exactly how many like generations you would like, you should outcross that tree um, before you have enough genetic diversity to introduce those trees back into the wild. So yeah, Darling 58 does not refer to like a clone. Mm-hmm. Um, the original tree was just one tree, yeah. the original 58, but uh, any tree that has the OXO gene that is related to that original tree mm-hmm. uh, is referred to as Darling 58. Very yeah. cool. No, that's, that's really amazing. Um, Cause that was another, I guess, concern being a, a restoration based nursery when we're thinking about, like our our mantra is we want uh, a lot of genetic diversity uh, in our plant material that's going to go out in the landscape for those same reasons you're saying you need to have overall population resilience. Um, you can't so, have one thing that kind of wipes everything out. So that's that you're factoring that in is is really amazing. Well, and, and there's a couple different things that you need to do, right? So so going back to that Ellis, that's your founder genome, right? So that's a single tree from from around Binghamton, New York. Um, and so you want to minimize how much of that founder tree is in your restoration population while also incorporating lots of diversity from these other trees in the wild type population. So uh, working with Virginia Tech, identifying how much diversity is in the, in the native and the remnant population, uh, we've discovered that there are three big regions of diversity, basically New England in the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic, and then the Southern uh, portions of the range. And while there are certainly like niche types of adaptability that we'll want to incorporate, uh, we want to make sure that we get um, – based on some population genetics analysis, we need about 80 or so trees from New England. We need about 80 or so trees from the Mid-Atlantic, and we need about 30 to 50 trees from that southern region uh, incorporated into this initial D58 um, uh, restoration population in order to reflect the remnant wild populations. And so that's where a lot of these, um, both the backcross orchards, which um, some of which we've completely eliminated the Chinese background and some of which still has it, and we also have what's called germplasm conservation orchards. And I'm using air quotes for those of you who can't see what I'm doing on the video. Um, and so that's where we take these wild type trees and put them in people's backyards 
because it's a lot easier for us to do this breeding in someone's backyard than to have to go up on a bunch of different mountaintops, which, while fun, is very time and resource consuming. You know, and until you mentioned it, I hadn't even thought about range. And I know we covered that at the beginning, mm-hmm. but it made me think of, you know, for us, you know, a common example is uh, redbud. And for us, if we were to take a seedling grown redbud from Florida and bring it up to New Jersey, even though it's native here, it's not going to survive the winter. So I hadn't even thought about the range that you're trying to cover yeah. and those nuances. The other, just to throw in there too, without even knowing, because I I kind of attach this to everything. I think wetland indicator status. What is it an up? Is chestnut an upland tree? A wetland tree? Is it like facultative where it's found in both? And that was a a really great thought because I was thinking of we like to play a game on our podcast sometimes when we come across some like crazy phrase and say that would be a great band name and what kind of music would they play and your germplasm conservation orchard it's like oh I could see them being like a jam band oh yeah just, totally yeah. Uh, well, you've got a built-in acronym. It's GCO. Yeah. Hey, you yeah. go to that latest GCO show? <laughs> I'm um, in. I'm all. I'm. I'm, yeah. I'm putting the bumper sticker on my car. Nice. Uh, well, ch- chestnut is very much an upland species. It can okay. hang out in the mid slopes. It's not wetland. Um, I actually work in a site in central Maine where it's a boggy site at the base of a of an upland kind of potato field area. Mm-hmm. And you can find where the squirrels have tucked chestnuts into these hummocks in the bog, oh, and wow. so. They'll live there, but it's certainly not where they want to be. Actually, where y'all are um, on the edge of the Pinelands with this really nice sandy soil, Long Island, the highlands of New Jersey, Michigan, like that's their favorite. They love mm-hmm. like lots of sand. They don't they don't want all sand, um, but they want lots of sand. They want well-drained, highly permeable soils. Yeah. They love rocks. They like growing in just rock piles. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that other soils aren't suitable. Um, but they they like well drained uh, locations, um, and so that range is is very significant. We've got they tend to prefer the mid elevations um, on slopes like Mount Mitchell. You know the real high elevations. You you typically don't find them in like six thousand feet. You know in 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 the Appalachian Mountains. Um, but it's it's really important. So to your point here in in Pennsylvania, I I have taken trees from Lancaster from near Philadelphia, and I have planted them up on the Allegheny Plateau. And they get zapped. That mm-hmm. that cold tolerance is not there. And I think Adriana mentioned at the beginning, like how climate is becoming a little bit more erratic. And so, you know, really paying attention to those different climate patterns and what we put where and when. You know, we don't want to move stuff from Georgia up to Maine in anticipation of 80 year climate mm-hmm. models. You know, you have to do that. You know, relatively slowly and while you watch the patterns and how they change over time. We talk about that on the podcast all the time, and no one knows that answer, especially when you're looking yeah. at long-lived trees. Like we were saying, if you're going to plant a white oak right now here, are you using a southern seed source or, or are you, you using your current seed source? I, I don't know that anyone has that answer yet, and I, I'm, I'm assuming we're going to find out <laughs> relatively soon. Stay tuned for more of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Presented by Pinelands Nursery. Hi, I'm Casey Clapp. And I'm Alex Croson. And we're hosts of Completely Arbitrary, the podcast about trees and other related topics. Each episode, we talk about one species of tree. We first teach you how to identify the tree in its native habitat, and then we share a story about that tree and its place in history, ecology, mythology, food, sociology, and lots more. Then we give the tree its titular arbitrary rating from 0 to 10 golden cones of honor, and we play a silly tree game before answering a listener 
listener question. If you're a fan of Native Plants Healthy Planet, we think you'd love our episode on the black cottonwood, wrongfully scorned, rightfully wrong, all about the ecological role that cottonwoods play, contrasted with their reputation in society. Or you may be interested in our episode on the sweet gum, Liquid Amber Flows From It, where you'll hear me and Alex debate the merits of this tree from an ecological and arboricultural perspective. Find new episodes of Completely Arbitrary every Thursday anywhere you listen to your pods or explore our vast catalog of tree stories from around the world. Should we uh, end with a tree pun? Sure. You got any ideas? Hmm. No, I'm stumped. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Um, before we talk about how all of you work together, I, I just – because we went so deep with uh, Adriana and Eric. Sarah, what are you currently working at? Like what is – what what projects – like how do you – how is what you do different from what they're doing right now? I'm a forester. I'm not a molecular geneticist. Um, <laughs> I, I like to think a lot about um, how do you get these things in the ground. And, and, and so a lot of that, how do you get that diversity incorporated? How do you get um, – I do a lot of silvicultural work, um, and I've been doing a lot of life cycle history analysis at sites where American chestnut is um, natively regenerating and naturally regenerating. So I've had a lot of um, fun studying sites in Maine, Vermont, um, Minnesota, Wisconsin – where they there are escaped populations, and we can study the herbivore populations and the scatter hoarder behavior of of certain um, rodents to say, all right, when we go to restore these populations, how many trees of how many different backgrounds do we need to put in a location to call it restored? I'm using air quotes again to a certain location. Um, so I work less on the genetics side of that and more with the do you use herbicide or not? How do you um, keep the invasive species at bay? How do you protect from herbivory from deer and rabbits and things like that? And um, how do you make sure, like, what's the life cycle history and how many trees are you going to plant in a certain location? So um, I like to consider myself a dirt forester. I want to put trees in the dirt and um, put out as many as I can and work with nurseries to ramp up production. So um, I've been working a lot uh, primarily with state agency nurseries, but but some private nurseries as well. How do we ramp up production and get these things distributed out to private landowners uh, yep. who own 85 plus percent of the land in the eastern U.S.? They're going to be absolutely essential to getting this thing restored back into the into the forests. Have you found the the consumer, like not I want to say consumer demand, but that like landowner demand to just be like overwhelming? Um, I only ask that because I'm in like a, a chestnut, facebook group that probably y'all are into but uh i see so many people say when are we going to be able to get darling 58 just it seems like that question happens daily it, it does and it's really interesting to see um you know because we do make seedlings available of of both wild type and um backcross material mm -hmm. again to look at when you start distributing this to the public yeah how are they going to be able to distribute this and so while i think there's lots of people who want a few seedlings. Yes. You yeah, know, there, yeah. there are very few people who want lots of seedlings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, trying to meet and balance that demand of providing, you know, bundles of 25 seedlings to people who want to put them on, mm -hmm. you know, a small acreage of land all the way up to the large landowners who will, there, there are few, there are very few of them, but they do want to plant thousands yeah. 
of trees across the landscape. And so we've, we've been working with a lot of different types of landowners, planting in gaps, planting on forest edges, planting in, you know, all these different types of forest mm-hmm. and, and field. Um, situations to say what's yeah. the best way to get this out yeah. of the landscape. And, and saying that, it made me think of Tom's father who has a farm <laughs> that's distributing Rutgers hazelnuts. Were you thinking? <laughs> well, about, I'm, I'm, I was going to say that because he's yeah. texting me right now. Oh, saying, okay. How can I get him? I want to <laughs> yeah. know, I wanna know how I could do this. He's he's growing and distributing the, the Rutgers hybrid hazelnuts that are blight resistant. So like for the, the landowners that are 1,000, are, are they looking at this as a future commercial crop as far as master wood or just like we're we're talking about wildlife, but there's potentially uh, commercial industry for it too. I would imagine, as far as selling the but nuts, potentially. And I mean, that's something that we we've done some um, wood analyses to look to see what what what's going to happen with. Um, and I don't think we know yet what what the wood will do in in D fifty eight. We've done a lot of analysis with with the hybrids, but I think that remains to be seen. But certainly, there's interest. In developing commercial, there's tons of interest on the climate change, yeah. carbon sequestration oh, yeah. realm, and I think uh, we've we've worked for years with a group called Green Forests Work and ARRI, who are working to restore mine lands, and mm-hmm. you know we're we're really um, excited about um, propagating more chestnut and other high value hardwoods on those degraded lands, um, both to restore them to more product pro- productive lands, but also from the standpoint of long term carbon sequestration we we've talked about a lot of really cool technology and and things to do that's a lot of money where does the the fund i'm i'm imagining funding sometimes has to be a limitation of of some source where where is the money coming from and is it enough to do what you're trying to do There's never enough. Um, (laughs) I kind of knew that was the answer. You you, you always have to um, uh, prioritize, right? And so I'll I'll let um, um, Adriana and Eric speak to to ESF specifically. But uh, for for the American Chestnut Foundation, I mean, we cobble together a wide variety, and I think ESF does too, but a wide variety of sources of funding. Uh, Most of it is private philanthropy. Um, Some of it comes from from government and, and grants. USDA grants, uh, things like that. Um, very little comes from, um, well, I guess that's, that's, you know, it grants, government grants, private grants and private philanthropy. That's, that's the primary that's way that, that we do this. Uh, the American chestnut foundation is, um, our annual budget is about three, three and a half million, um, dollars a year. And that's to fund a lot of the on the ground grassroots volunteer work. And, and also, um, we do provide some funding to ESF. We provide funding to Virginia Tech. We provide funding to the University of Georgia. You know all these other organizations that are so. We and we, that's a lot of the collaboration that occurs to try and get this um, off the ground and and in, well into the ground. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure you couldn't do this without each other. It's not just money. Sometimes it's about manpower. How do all of you work together? And and what other organizations may you work with that help make this dream happen? Yeah, so uh, here at ESF, we're just like a research lab um, with fairly limited uh, people power. Uh, So it's, yeah, but working with TACF is really essential for us because they have thousands of volunteers that they work with who are just chestnut fanatics who put in, I don't even know how many hours of work. and also they have a really far reach since they have people who work all throughout the range of the American chestnut. 
So, uh, yeah, they're really essential partners for us because we just work in the lab. We do research here. We have fairly limited capacity to produce and distribute trees and actually get them in the ground. We get a lot of our funding from uh, government grants as well, uh, research grants that we write ourselves. And in the last few years, we've gotten a large amount of funding from Templeton World Charity Foundation. They've supported us for multiple years now. So it's kind of a a cobbling of a whole bunch of different funding sources together. If if you were to dream big right now and not say, all right, we wish, wish we could just destroy you know, chestnut blade. But if, if, if there was a technology that you could create or, um, one thing that would, that would move this progress this forward, anything, what would that, like, is there technology that doesn't exist that needs to exist to take it to another step? Is there, is it just a matter of money? Is it's, if you could dream big, what, what would you ask for to, to get, to take this next step? Having a regulatory approval. (laughs) (laughs) That would, yeah, once we have that, that'll significantly accelerate what we can do and how many trees we can get out there. Um, That will really kick off, I think, the real restoration efforts. Um, Other than that, like, you know, the American chestnut is a fantastic tree, but once it's out there, like, we would love to start working on other tree species Mm -hmm. as well. I would love that. Yeah, I I guess that's a... Just a little quick aside question is what other trees from ESS perspective, what other uh, trees would you like to look at um, outside of chestnuts? So we have researchers that work with the American elm um, Mm -hmm. and also the uh, chinkapin, which is another castania species that is also affected by the blight. They're actually a couple species of chinkapin, the Allegheny chinkapin and the Ozark chinkapin. But yeah, they're both affected by the chestnut blight as well. So we have researchers that work to identify genes for the uh, the American elm uh, that would make them resistant to mm-hmm. Dutch elm disease. Um, we might start working with American beech as well, since beech leaf disease is a mm-hmm. new scary I, emerging pathogen. I, I was just reading about that over the weekend, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, fascinating. That's just some trees. Well, I there's just no, there's no shortage of trees with tree diseases. I mean, you we could rattle off a whole list of trees that need some help. I mean, there's hemlock with the woolly hemlock adelgid. There's ash with emerald ash borer. There's the, like mentioned before, there's elm with Dutch elm disease, but there's also another disease called elm yellows, which is another disease that we're working with here. Um, in beach, there's the two different diseases, beach bark disease, beach leaf disease. And, uh, you know, that's just on the East Coast. Like when you start talking about the West Coast, you know, with uh, all the diseases they have out there with uh, sudden oak death syndrome and uh, and a few others too. Like I said, you can go on and on, but there's a lot of potential for this technology to help all kinds of threatened tree species. Yeah, I was thinking of bacterial leaf scorch with with red oaks here, and mm-hmm. and and I'm sure we could keep going on. But this is a feel good story to to bring this back would be amazing, and it just opens the door to yeah. what else what else we could do. Um, I just lost my train of thought. I'm just so well, overwhelmed. I guess I'm yeah. Gonna- <laughs> I was going to say with with those other. I guess 
to tackle some of those other problems, is would the process be fairly similar? Would you? I'm, I'm clearly not the same gene, I would imagine, but oh, thank that, you. that process of uh, I I don't remember exactly how you described it, but how you would introduce the the was it bacteria or something, right? That would introduce the gene, if, like naturally. Yeah. Um, yeah, would you would... kind of use that same process for other? And, species and I want to kick this in I was what I was going to ask was were there were things that were tried along the way that didn't work like what did what did you learn from some of the things that didn't work and how would that shape some of the things you would try on on different species well I'd say one of the biggest things that didn't work that ended up helping us was that research on hypovirulence they at one point hypovirulence was thought could possibly be the answer to chestnut blight disease and they studied it really hard and they tried to get that virus to spread and take out the blight and it didn't work uh, for several different reasons. But in that research, we found the key to being able to fight the blight in a different way. So even when some things don't work that you're working on, they can teach you other things to help you using other techniques. And if we were going to move into other trees, uh, we would be able to take a lot of the lessons that we learned along the way with American chestnut and apply them to those trees. Mm-hmm. And like I said before, you, you would have to develop the whole process of tissue culture and gene delivery and all of those things and sorting through uh, candidate genes for resistance. But we know how to do that now because we've d- now done it with the American chestnut. So yeah. it wouldn't be like starting from square one like we had to with chestnut. Yeah, and I'm just kicking back and thinking about something we said oh, almost an hour ago now. Um, but did it help in a sense that we lost as much uh, as many chestnuts as we did because it it gave you a little bit clearer picture of where to go to look for um, resistance. Whereas something like the oaks that we're seeing, it's maybe it's just starting to set in in Northeast and you don't know if that resistance... Oh, I guess that's not really what you did with the chestnuts anyway. I, I thought it was a really good question, and then I started thinking about it as I'm asking, like, oh, this isn't what they did, is it? But, well, I, I, but does, I guess with the well, – still with the oaks, do you think it's – or hemlocks or some of this stuff, do you think you have – has that population been limited enough that you're not just looking all over and hoping you're finding the right thing um, when you dive into that? Or are we just not even close to that kind of stuff yet? Uh, well – let me just uh, clarify. So you're asking if they're already like too far gone to be helped at this point or is No, actually I'm kind of asking the, far the ops, they aren't far enough that your gene pool is still so broad to look at. But um and I was trying to draw a parallel between the chestnut and then I was like, oh, but that's not how they they did it. But like if you I'm looking at oaks right now and I'm like, well, there's still plenty you of see oaks, some yeah. that are are declining, but you have plenty that aren't. Um Well, let me put it this yeah. way. So uh, it took us basically eliminating every other option yeah. before we decided to go with genetic engineering, right? It was it was basically the last thing mm-hmm. that we were willing to do. And what I would like to see is that we begin developing these techniques now for these other trees yeah. rather than exhausting every last option like we did with the chestnut. Maybe we start building that capability now so by the time we're able to actually do it, the species isn't extinct. So, yeah, I I think that would be a good lesson to take. Yeah. I was going to say, Eric, thank you because you took my really poorly worded question and gave the, <laughs> the answer I was looking for. So You, you know, it's, it's hard to not 
be overwhelmed yeah. and passionate about this as you know, and I will say I'm biased because I, I love native plants and I work with native plants. But every time I see a native plant failing, most of the time from problems that we created ourselves, bringing things from overseas and introducing things that shouldn't be here. Uh, you know, every time something fails, it it gives a breeder an idea to bring a non-native plant over. It's like, oh, if you could think of how many Japanese Zelkova were planted in place of American elm, saying, oh, we'll give you that vase shape. And you're not going to have the same problems. It's not going to die. It just opens up the opportunity. Everyone sees an opportunity where it's, oh, we can introduce these trees from Eurasia or we can uh, breed this one. And I I love trying to preserve what's here and singing the praises of it and seeing it come back. And that's, to me, like such a fantastic story. It's hard not to get pumped up about that. Well, and, and I, I want to, I'm sure you guys have invoked Doug Tallaby's name a, a ton about, He's been the importance against, of, yeah. Yeah, about the importance of native species. And, and, and I don't think that can be stressed enough. It's, it's so incredibly important. Um, I, I, I want to echo Eric's um, thought about, you know, being able to incorporate these modern technologies. I, I, I want to take the opportunity to say what I wish we had, and that's right. two things. One is I, I think gene editing technologies are really phenomenal and, you know, all of these molecular techniques to be able to read. I'm, I'm not a geneticist, so I'll say take that with a grain of, thought, grain of salt. Being able to go in and say, what do we need to change in order to make these things resistant or mo- more robust to these non-native invaders? I think if we could harness that and, and incorporate it quickly could be revolutionary. Um, in saving some of these species, but the other thing I want is a um, some something that repels deer all the time, <laughs> so that we can not only can you make them resistant, but they can survive in the landscape. So do those we, are my two. That, that's on my wish list. Do we know how? Do we know enough about how deer interact with American chestnut? That was actually a question I jotted down probably an hour ago that I, uh, I didn't bring up. It's deer candy. They they okay. love it. So if you, if you're deer, um, especially Jersey, New York, here in PA, like we're, we're fencing pretty virtually everything that we plant. Okay. So that the deer like the plant. I knew they like the nuts, but they like the plants too. Though. They like the wow. Plants. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah, I know some the the stat that always gets thrown out there, and I don't know how they actually measure this, but. And this is more Chinese chestnut, but I've always heard that deer prefer chestnuts like a hundred to one over oaks. But I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. There's actually a couple yeah, of videos. <laughs> there's a couple yeah. of videos of how deer eat chestnuts. They're kind of fun to watch. Yeah, they'll they'll eat yeah. the chestnut nut and they'll kind of nim, nim, nim. they'll like do it around <laughs> in their mouth yeah. and then they'll spit the shell out, which really? is really wow. fascinating. Wow. Yeah, you know, it's there's there's so many factors facing so many of the plants that we love that are important to wildlife and, and tom and i were able to learn about the white bark pine when we had uh perry from glacier national park and that's that wasn't even outside introduced that's just climate change you know they're being taken over by a a, a native insect you know and it's just to, to see us come this far and be this close is just so empowering it's it's just <laughs> I, I can't imagine how you feel working it. I'm just hearing the story and getting pumped up. So how how close do you think we are before we we see people be able to get them in their hands? And I guess on the flip side, do we know what that world will interact like when they're out there and 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 you have them in our forest again? Do we know how that will affect? just certain pollinators or certain wildlife do we have 
Do we have that kind of idea? Well, I, I'll, I'll start out by saying, you know, restoration, while I think um, for Adriana and Eric and, and ESF, once, once that deregulation happens, I think getting them into people's hands will be a function of how long does it take us to make a lot of chestnuts mm-hmm. to get them out there. But, but I don't know how many trees your listeners have planted, but planting trees is easy, easy. getting them to live yeah. a long time yeah. is, is difficult. And, and so, again, that's, that goes back to a lot of what I do, where how are we going to get 180 million acres repopulated with these trees? It's going to be a decades, if not centuries long process. So we're going to start it. <laughs> I don't think our lifetimes, even as... I won't go out and, but it, I think it's going to take a long time for us to see the, I, we might see regeneration of some of the initial populations that we have put out. But again, with climate change and all these things, like it's going to be an ongoing effort to ensure that these populations are persisting and surviving in, in the ecosystem, whatever that might look like 50 years, a hundred years, even 200 years from now. Well, that's, that's part of the reason why I was asking it's, it's, if it was upland or wetland, if there was enough habitat to reestablish these in numbers in mm-hmm. certain areas. Like we're seeing in New Jersey, we were just at a conference, uh, what was it, Society of American Military Engineers. Yes. And they were talking about in New Jersey, they want to restore in the next seven years 10,000 acres of Atlantic white cedar, which is phenomenal. But part of that problem is it needs to be reestablished because climate change because salt water is creeping into fresh water, mm-hmm. killing those plants. So it's not even that the habitat exists anymore. You have to create new habitat to get that established. Yeah, chestnut's a little different. Like longleaf pine, that restoration mm-hmm. was mainly, mainly a habitat and land use you know, history issue, and Atlantic white cedar is, is a habitat issue and mm-hmm. making sure you have the right place to plant it. I, we are lucky in that regard with chestnut where there is a lot of land that is suitable for chestnut. It's mainly going to be the the person power to get gotcha. it and the time that it's going to take to get these things back out and the invasive species and deer and all that other stuff that we'll also have to deal with <laughs> while we're doing it. Yeah. If, yeah. if there was one thing each of you wanted the public to know about uh, this whole journey and process and how important this is, if you could share one message that's close to your heart, what would you want the public to know? I would say that us at ESF, we are an environmental college. And I think if you ask anyone on the team, we would probably consider ourselves environmentalists. And we really want to see the best come from this work. And we want to see a real positive effect of these native species. And so we go through lots of uh, work and and painstaking research to assure that these trees are safe and not significantly different than the Native American chestnut tree. We've tested to make sure there's no toxicity to things like insects or mycorrhizae or or, uh, fish, you know, aquatic, aquatic insects, tadpoles, bees. And we've been able to rule out the worst things that 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 people fear from genetically engineered organisms and so we we've made sure that we aren't going to do anything that's going to harm the environment and that these trees are safe and uh it should be something that should be celebrated 
has has there been any pushback? That was actually something I wanted to ask as well. Is um, I, I had dinner with a, a seed technician. Uh, well, I had dinner with a bunch of people, but she was there, and um, was she basically was in gene editing was her whole the company's business, and she was telling me how much pushback, even though what they are doing is is not transgenic, so it's not GMO in a sense um, or genetically modified organism. It was just removing genes from strawberries to make them a different color or something like that and um but she was saying there's so much so much of her job was actually sitting down with politicians and regulatory agencies and explaining what they were actually doing and how it was safe and why it was okay and um but they were getting so much pushback from european politicians and european agencies where gmo stuff has been banned in some regard um even though what they were doing was not what was being banned, they were still getting a lot of pushback there. So that was what Fran was saying. I was like, early on in this conversation, I wonder how much pushback you're getting because it is like when you talk about what you're doing, it's you're looking for genetic diversity, but it is technically genetically modified. Right. So it's kind of one of those things where I could see people being upset over it, but it's also doing something amazing at the same time. So yeah, that was a long way of asking what Fran did. Are you getting a lot of pushback? <laughs> We've definitely seen some pushback, uh, especially from like dedicated groups yeah. where their whole mission is to push back against genetic engineering. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, I would say that we've seen a lot of support from people, even people who uh, in the past had been opposed to things like genetic engineering. Mm-hmm. And it's because so many of the arguments that you hear against the use of GMOs is the colloquial term uh, don't apply to the American chestnut. Yeah. We're not the the trait that we put in there is disease resistance. It's not herbicide resistance. It's not BT insect resistance. These aren't. It's not a commercial trait. You know, it's not uh, been put there by some uh, multinational company. You know, it's it's not patented. So th- these are all the classic uh, arguments against the use of genetic engineering, and none of them apply to the tree. Mm-hmm. And so when people learn that, a lot of times they'll say, like, maybe we've been looking at this the wrong way. This this technology has other applications, and the American chestnut is the perfect example of that, where this technology is being used for a good purpose and, and could definitely lead to positive results. Yeah, it's it's really from what you've kind of outlined, it was kind of like an all or nothing kind of thing. It was this was you. Well, I think you exact words earlier. This was like the last hope in a sense um, to have American chestnut populations and back in the U.S. So yeah, no, that was something I was been thinking about, friends. So I'm glad you brought it up, and I'm glad I got to expound on it. <laughs> <laughs> I am too, because uh, yeah, I was a little too brief. So I, I appreciate doing that. Well, um. Before we go into our final question, Tom, do you have anything? Oh, this is this like is a chance. Like I mentioned, my dad was asking a lot of questions. He knew we were doing this day. He's really pumped up about it. Let me pull up the text thread with him because I was like, if you have any questions, make sure you send them to me so I can I can ask. Um, well, let me just say, uh, I, I kind of took a long time. You asked me a question about the one thing that I want. Oh to yeah, yeah. We never oh, finished oh, that. Sorry. Did we? Yeah. sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the one thing that you wish. Fran, what was your question? If if you could dream big and have one wish that would advance this, I think Adriana was, she she did say it was pretty brief regulatory approval. Um, 
is is there anything else you could wish for that that would just or what was it? It was the one thing you could let the public know. Actually, I'm yes. talking about yeah. the wrong uh, question. Sorry about that. There's one thing that I could let the public know. Well, first of all, it would be what Eric said. It's that we're environmentalists here. You know, this is a project to restore a species. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if I could just send one pub, one message out to the general public. Um, yeah, definitely the, the hardest thing about my job is just having to repeatedly tell people that, no, you cannot have one of our trees just yet. <laughs> um, you probably won't be able to have one of our trees even like immediately after. Yeah, uh, They are deregulated. Uh, and the biggest challenge will be just trying to grow enough trees to meet the demand, both for the public and also for these large-scale restoration efforts. So... I just want the public to know that, you know, we're, we're getting there. This is a long-term project we're looking at to restore a species. We would love to have everyone who has supported our project receive a tree, but this is a long-term goal we're looking at. So be patient with us. And I really hope that even though people will not receive a tree to like plant in their yard, maybe like they could just draw inspiration from our story and uh, it could be kind of a a nice story about how um, we can kind of reverse some damage that we've done to a species and to the ecosystem. It's going to take patience. You don't necessarily get a new Xbox when it comes out for the holidays. You have to wait. (laughs) You have to wait a while before it can ramp up. So if you look at it in that respect, these are probably going to – the demand far outweighs that. It's a little bit harder to produce than, than Oh, yeah. That. Sarah, how about you? Yeah, I want to echo that um, uh, patience will, will be of the utmost importance. And, you know, I, I think folks should know how many people, how many careers, how many lifetime careers have been put into this program, how many will continue to be put in and – you know, I, I think I opened up things saying I love all the partnerships and all the people that we work with. I mean, there are literally thousands of people that have put time, effort, money, um, lives into this project. And so I think if people can be patient and also if they want to contribute, you know, there are tons of ways they can volunteer. Obviously, both ESF and TACF would love to accept your um, donations to our respective organizations in order to put that to good work. And then eventually we'll have plenty of trees. I think you know, um, both ESF and TACF are looking at, you know, within the next 10 years, I think we'll be, be able to meet that really initial huge demand and then be able to to meet ongoing restoration needs. So will it take 10 years for you to get a tree? I don't know, but hopefully we'll get you some sooner than that. But it, it will take a good amount of time to ramp up to significant numbers of trees. We're, we're on tree time here and that's in, <laughs> yeah. that's in decades, not not, you know, hours, oh, yeah. weeks. So, and that was some of the stuff that even just spun off of your last two comments there was, what does that, once it's approved, what does that time frame look like for, from approval to we actually have, uh, of American chestnuts thriving in nature and producing plants again, or even you, you the one step in between is like when from approval, how long do you think it's going to take before it's in people's hands? Or even people's ground, I guess, is even better than in their hands. What are they going to do with in their hands? Put it in the ground. So, so where? Yeah. Well, both TACF and ESF are working to make 
a small backlog of yeah. seedlings available to longtime supporters. You know, that's that's going to be the first major distribution and, and educational aspects, too. I know Adriana mm-hmm. has been doing a phenomenal job lining up places to plant trees where people can see these things and, and not yeah. be scared of of GMO trees and say, look, this is this is normal. This is a tree, you know, so. You know, the first priorities are going to be longtime supporters and, and collaborators and contributors and, and educational purposes. Um, but uh, we've got several sites where we have these these GCOs and and orchards where we're going to um, control pollinate as many seeds as we can, test them for the presence of the gene. You know, we're talking tens of thousands of trees that we're able to make under current um, conditions, and then that goes into various research needs, public distribution, and educational needs. You know, and then seed orchards for a long-term establishment. So, you know, there are going to be some things that go in the ground right away. There are going to be some of these landscape scale, um, thousands of tree installations that go in primarily for research purposes, but which also is reintroduction, right? Um, So not day one, but whenever planting season is after day one, you know, we'll have some forest land plantings because we need to get them out and see, see how well they or can incorporate into the woods. Something we've been trying to do for some time now is to encourage people to plant wild type American chestnuts Mm -hmm. on their property. And what that will enable them to do is to take pollen from us and then pollinate their trees. And then they can produce their own trees using our pollen. And that might be one way to get a tree a little bit faster is if you have your own wild type American chestnut tree that can produce nuts you can receive pollen and then produce your own nuts. And also you could receive scion wood to do grafting onto your trees. That would be another way to get it a little bit faster than an actual us giving you a tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And then the second part of that was what can well, – and, and uh, Sarah, you had mentioned that donating is a great way. Like you mentioned earlier that money is something that goes a long way with this effort – what are some other things that people can do to show support? Um, it's obviously it's uh, approval process, which isn't a political thing, but is there any like um, legal stuff that's going on where someone can contact a legislator and, and promote this, that kind of stuff, or ask for their legislative support on this kind of action? Um, anything like that? Absolutely. Legislative support to get more people more comfortable with, with the process. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if D 58 gets approved, that doesn't necessarily green light everything that like Eric's working on some of the new genes he's working on mm-hmm. that will have to go through the same regulatory process. So getting um, politicians, legislators, regulators more accustomed to the pro- program and what's going on and what differentiates programs for say forest health versus sheer commercial, you know, um, and, and corporate gain, it, you know, that would be really helpful. Um, all of these regulatory programs come with public comment periods and uh, both TACF yeah, and DSF have worked to push that out to get public comments and lots of support, and it's been great. We've had majority positive comments from those. So, you know, keep an eye out for those calls for the public to come in and give positive comments and supportive comments for the projects. Um, we need people to go tell the story. You know, people taking – we've got um, uh, signs. I know Adriana has coming up with signs to, to go out with some of these trees from educational purposes. We've got – little learning boxes that people can go around and tell people about the chestnut story. Um, Fran, you opened this up by saying we are past the the population of people who knew what this tree was. 
And so the more we can get out the word about how American chestnut was lost, the cultural connections that it made and how we're bringing it back and then how it can set the template for other species in the future. I think it's a, it's a phenomenal story. We would love for people to take that and, and tell their friends. Those are really easy and free ways that people can help, um, the process. There are other ways that you can volunteer and get involved. Plant wild type Americans help us do these controlled pollinations at ESF, at Penn State, at MetaView. Like, you know, we're going to need lots of people out there making these trees and planting them in the landscape. There's going to be lots of upcoming po- um, opportunities for people to be involved. Yeah. And, and just another thing with the, the wild type American chestnuts, where can people get uh, those right now? What's a, a way for them to, to, or is there those? a way? Is there a way to plant them? Uh, there is. And so all of our chapters, including New York, including Pennsylvania, we, we collect wild type American chestnuts. I know New York and Pennsylvania make those seeds available um, for, for members, awesome. uh, people who ask. You can get the seeds. Um, the American Chestnut Foundation sells seedlings, bare root seedlings every spring. We sell out literally within hours. So it's, it's tough to come by. But um, I'd say the easiest way is to get involved. Um, come to meetings. Join the American Chestnut Foundation. No one thinks these things are happening because the easiest way to get nuts is to just know someone who knows someone who has some nuts and, oh, yeah. and grab them and, and then learn yeah. how to plant them and, and how to get them to grow. And I would add to that, you mentioned earlier, Tom, the Facebook group. We have a Facebook group. It's mm-hmm. called the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project. And there's lots of discussion in that group about growing chestnuts and finding chestnuts, etc., and uh, if you get lucky, you might be able to find someone on there that has uh, wild-type American chestnuts as well. I'm going to ask each of you afterwards. I'm going to just shoot an email because I would love to include all the links for these in our show notes so that anyone that wants to learn more about this or donate or help, that that we make sure we get that information to everyone because I'm sure it's more than we can probably list all at once. But if you want to throw, yeah. throw some out right now, feel free. You're more than welcome www.acfapplecatfrank.org is American Chestnut Foundation. And uh, the ESF project is uh, can be found at esf.edu slash chestnut. All right. Awesome. Awesome. So, Tom, do you have oh, any other? Wait, you I had, yeah, I, we started my dad's list and then we never actually got now to Now it's going to be Let's never. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. What do you actually ask? Well, actually, no, you already answered a lot of his questions because right, awesome. one of them was, was if the resistance was passed into the seed, which you guys said yes. And then it was how cold of a climate can they thrive in? Can they thrive in? Yeah. So we've had some people in Iceland plant them, and I think wow. they lived, but yeah. I wouldn't wow. call it thriving. But they, <laughs> they do grow into, into Canada. I think about zone four. Okay. is currently their mm-hmm. limit and they would go zone 4b if you want to be safe they can grow in 4a but that's kind of pushing it yeah. i figured if they're growing in syracuse new york and uh which is what the snowiest city in the continental u.s right and um they would grow where he wants to plant them in the adirondacks so uh and then he also said something that he heard that they were the american chestnut nuts are sweeter than chinese chestnuts any any knowledge on, on that? I would disagree with that. I disagree. Mean, okay. it, it, it varies quite a bit. This this goes along with the romanticization I had mentioned earlier <laughs> yeah. in the podcast. I mean, if you talk to people who are like the real connoisseurs of chestnut flavor, 
and and edibility, they would probably disagree with that. And and um, I'd say that probably some Chinese cultivars and maybe some mm. European cultivars might taste better, and they're certainly larger, which makes them more uh, edible just uh, by that measurement. But uh, yeah, as far as them being uh, objectively sweeter than the other species i don't know if if that is necessarily true yeah and then um just to to spin off of that so if the only about 50 or you said 50 percent of the nuts have the gene right what do you do with the other 50 percent that's actually one of the cool things about about the transgenic approach is that 50% 50% are actually non-transgenic. And a lot of people see that as a disadvantage, but when you think about it, it actually is quite an amazing thing that even going into the future, these trees will be able to produce fewer species American chestnut. So even if uh, you decided you didn't want a Darling 58 for whatever reason, you can go to a Darling 58 tree and still get wild-type American yeah. chestnut. So I think that's pretty cool. But uh, as far as what we're doing with them now, um, a lot of them will get uh, planted with their full siblings uh, for paired mm-hmm. testing. So we'll we'll plant them together, and then you'll be able to compare full siblings that do and don't have the gene. And other than that, um, we don't do too much with them, I don't think. Uh, we can't really distribute them because they still are mm-hmm. offspring of Darling 58. So you can't really risk sending those out. And you know what I mean? Yes, so... Yeah. Uh, yeah, we don't have too much use for the the wild type nuts, other than as great scientific controls for our experiments. Mm-hmm. All right, I do have yeah. one more question. I swear. It's oh, me too. I, all right, all right. <laughs> last questions. Last questions. All right, the if it's producing fifty percent darling fifty eight and fifty percent wild, I know the wild ones eventually could or will die off. But if they get old enough where they're cross pollinating, does that weaken? weaken it over time as a whole or does it help it over time as a whole do we know as in help the help or hurt yeah the 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 darling 58 does it does it lessen it over time if they're cross-pollinating no so i'm i'm trying to do mental punnett squares right yeah. now I'm, yeah. I'm also not a geneticist um, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think about like the inheritability uh so no um still like 50 yeah, percent okay yeah. all right offspring from those crosses would inherit the gene and the gene does not like degrade over okay. time okay yeah all right yes all right. okay and they also uh, stand there as a reservoir, as a non-resistant reservoir for the blight to reproduce in. And gotcha. this is something that you actually see in agricultural settings, too. They won't send you a seed bag that's full of 100% transgenic seeds. You want some refuge, is what they call it, okay. uh, mm-hmm. for the pathogen or the pest to be able to reproduce on naturally in order to keep any potential uh, resistant populations from emerging. Okay. Yeah, and then then my last question, and this is kind of what I was getting at, with what do you right. do with the other fifty percent? Is how many chestnuts do you guys eat, or is that frowned upon? <laughs> <laughs> Eric, you you imply that you eat some. So I definitely eat uh, lots of chestnuts, but not from our darling fifty eight crosses. Okay. That's that's verboten as of now. <laughs> um, we need approval from the FDA to do something like that, so we would never do something like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering uh, if the I, darling fifty eight ones taste different. 
Um, I would assume about a dozen. Okay. Uh, it's right. it's uh, it's just a little en- enzyme in there. That's, okay. uh, I see not, Adriana not smirking, so I think she might have she might have snuck one here or there and try. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just joking around. I don't know what they taste like? No, <laughs> no we uh, we have submitted samples yeah. of our transgenic yeah. nuts uh, and related non-transgenic. Mm-hmm. Uh, American chestnuts in for nutritional analysis and you know they're about the same compositionally and also although the gene we use comes from wheat it is not associated with gluten and we've compared like the amino acid sequence of this gene to the amino acid sequences of of gluten genes and um, they don't match up so um, even if you have like celiac disease you can yeah. theoretically at some point eat uh, darling 58 nuts yeah yeah that that has come with its own set of headaches that the source of this gene is wheat but this this gene is actually found in hundreds of species of plants it's found in almost all grasses and and many other things and uh when we started this research the best characterized gene for for oxo was in wheat so that's what we used if we could go back in time, we might have considered using it from another source, like maybe rice or something like that. That's not has no allergenicity. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have saved us a few headaches uh, around now. But uh, it, it is important to note that that uh, that oxogene is not gluten. It's not an allergen, which is something that people worry about with wheat products. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, no, I I didn't even think about that until you just said it. But I'm sure that again is another concern that other people have when they. There's, they're keyed in on on gluten and wheat, and or a red flag goes up when they hear hear it, that term. It just took us an hour and forty minutes to even think of it yeah. while talking about it. Yeah. So, all right, we promise no yeah. more questions except for the last and always the most important question. If someone doesn't say American chestnut, I might be a little disappointed. But we always end with the same question. It's it's a very simple one, but sometimes the hardest. And we would like to ask each of you what your favorite native plant is. I know mine, and it's not American chestnut, and okay. it's only because it allowed me to get married to my now husband, and it's Virginia creeper, and oh. it's because its scientific name is my favorite thing to sing in an operatic style, which is Parthenocystis quinquifolia, <laughs> and I just, that's how I am now married and have two kids, so I have to, it has to be my favorite. <laughs> I love the story. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. All right. That's, uh, well, yeah. we, we always joke. That around. is a fun one to say. That is a good one, yeah. We always um, I say Verbena Hastata to like the Hakuna, Hakuna Matata in The Lion King at my house. Now, I, I was curious because we always have this conversation when you hear other people pronouncing botanical names, you know – if they're going to pronounce it differently than you do, perfect. You know, fortunately, you pronounce it the same way we pronounce it. But like, you come across someone that will pronounce something differently, and you're, I ju- we just assume that they're right and we're wrong yeah. every time. So I was like, all right, I want to hear how wrong I've been saying this. But yeah. fortunately, it was the same way. So. That's how I we're going to say it. That way, but that's how I'm I say can't it wait till your next phone call when someone <laughs> you're, asks. You're going to have to sing it now. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I do. It's a curse. Everyone in this office will be cursing you later <laughs> yeah. when I'm when I'm singing it. Uh, Adriana, how about you? This is like the worst possible time of year you could have asked this because every native plant I see coming up is my new favorite plant. <laughs> well, you're, um, you're not bound to just one. If, if you want to name a few or if you want to change your answer or your mind, that's, that's allowed. Okay. I have two. Okay. I have a tree that is not the American chestnut. Um, I'm really partial to uh, Lyrodendron tulipifera. 
the tulip tree or the yellow poplar, I just, every time I see one, I think, wow, that is a great tree. And it's ecology with beetles and it's ecological history is just really interesting. And, um, also it's ramp season. So (laughs) maybe it's kind of a cliche, but yeah, allium trichosum. Do do you have a spot for ramps? Scientific names, uh, saying them out loud gives me some anxiety. (laughs) Do Do you have a spot for ramps? I know that's – I'm sure if you do, we're not asking you to, to give it up because that's that's uh, sacred. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm pretty selective with where I pick my ramps because I want it to be like a large enough population that yeah. I yeah. feel okay taking a little bit for myself. Um, I think that's like similar to the story of the American chestnut. That's because it's now in – like ramps are now endangered. That's a, another story mm-hmm. about – kind of harms we've done to a plant that we think is tasty um yeah i just ate some ramps earlier so that's why (laughs) yeah and ramps are also eight dollars uh if you want to add them to a pizza at a place in philadelphia i found that out over the weekend so yeah you you can quickly reason i actually saw on uh there was a tiktok that was talking about that have like we we Tell people, oh, be selective with where you're collecting ramps, but then you have the restaurant industries just going and getting tons. I was telling you about and, it. And then charging $8 per pizza that they want to put in. In West up. Virginia, there's yeah. a Ramparoni. It's yeah. called the Ramparoni, which is a ramp stuffed donut. Uh, ramp and pepperoni yeah, stuffed ramp, donut. Yeah, yeah ramp and pepperoni. Oh. <laughs> All right. Nice, hey. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Eric, your, your, um, your turn. Well, I, I got to say I'm biased, and uh, my favorite – tree has got to be the American chestnut, but I'm also a big fan of poplars, which is actually an unpopular opinion. I know that. And my, my favorite species is the big tooth aspen, uh, populus grandi dentata. But I'm also a gardener, a very avid gardener, and uh, I have several different specimens of the native hibiscus species, hibiscus oh. moschudos, and I'm a big fan of that species and, and putting it in my garden. Very yeah, nice. Cool. We we may be able to send you a few of those if if you yeah. want. <laughs> I'll accept them. I will accept them. You know, and I will say this. You okay? You got it. You got it. Hibiscus all around. Um, <laughs> the I think for the criticism for for uh, populace is that the people that criticize it are planting it where it's technically not native and in the in the right pl- you know right plant right place it serves its purpose well. But when you're what? When you're creating a, a hedgerow out in the middle of a farm field that nowhere near where you would find them native and they're growing quickly and breaking and falling over, maybe that's well, – Well, to be fair, for, for I guess for both of the tree species, I'm biased because I've studied poplar and I've studied mm-hmm. chestnut. But also I'm originally from uh, Bismarck, North Dakota, which okay. is where, it, where the biggest trees by far and most common are the cottonwood trees that are just enormous out mm-hmm. there. So that. I actually got married underneath one of those giant cottonwood trees. And, you know, so there's a special place in my heart for poplars. And uh, and they can make a big mess. That's probably another reason why people don't like them. They drop their branches and their buds. They have root sprouts, and they like to get into people's water systems. So I, I can understand all that. I'm willing to look past all those <laughs> things because of my, my deep, un, deep abiding love for, for the genus. 
Awesome. I I love all the answers. That's yeah. oh, yeah. it's almost always my favorite part because it's the story that always yes. gets me. Yeah. Not not necessarily the plant, but why you chose that plant. Yeah. Is why. Yeah, that was actually something we've we started compiling a list of everyone's favorite plants over 156 episodes, minus the ones that we don't have guests. Um, that I don't know whatever happened with that list. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think the person putting together the list started slacking off, <laughs> and that's my wife was putting it together for me. <laughs> but um. But the stories behind the favorite plants are often like my favorite parts because yeah. everyone has even whether it's a lighthearted story or sometimes it's a tragic story. But there's a story behind why. And it usually doesn't have to relate towards the plant itself. It's some kind of memory that they have in their their mind. Um, and it's always just fun hearing those stories. I agree. So we always end with a final thought. And this is where we hand the the floor over to each of you to and you can use the time however you want. You can summarize. You can promote. You can bring up something maybe we didn't uh, mention, but we each give you the floor, and and Tom and I will also uh, do a final thought as well. Uh, Eric, let's start with you if, if you want to give us your final thought. Well, I'd just like to thank you for having us on, and uh, it's getting the word out about this project is probably one of the the biggest things that can be done to to help it succeed is if people know about it so uh, thanks for having us on and i encourage other people to learn more about our project and share it with other people i i'm hoping that this although generating more knowledge doesn't create headaches for you as well with everyone knocking on you or going where when can i have my chestnuts please now <laughs> So I'm going to apologize for the phone calls in advance. That's all Adriana's problem. I don't have to worry about that. Adriana, we'll, we'll kick it to you next. Sure. Um, yeah, I am just continuously astounded by the passion of some chestnut enthusiasts and um, all the effort that so many people have put into trying to conserve and restore this species uh even on like a volunteer basis there are tons of professionals and also just countless people putting in volunteer labor to benefit the species um so yeah i just want to say thanks to all you chestnut enthusiasts out there every time i interact with one of them it's it's amazing awesome sarah how about you yeah, um, I'd echo the sentiments. Thank you all for allowing us to tell the story and, and spread out um, the important work about uh, saving this, this species, setting a template for others, um, and just making sure people, I, I think what you guys are doing, spreading the importance about native plants in general is, is so important and so vital. And it's not a singular species. It's all of them working collectively. Um, I got to watch a podcast or a uh, webinar last night uh, about uh, the Half Earth project that E.O. Wilson promotes um, and how important, you know, preserving half of the land mass on Earth is going to, well, not just land mass, but, but of, of Earth for long-term species uh, renewal and um, ongoing life is going to be for, for Earth. So, I mean, what you guys are doing, what we're doing plays a small role in ensuring that, you know, these ecosystems that we treasure and, and keep things going, how important that is for long time and a long time after we're gone. Wait, so. wait, that's, that's a fantastic thought. It made me think of, we had Dr. Enrique Sala from National Geographic on as a guest and he had the same, ex he was like anything less than 50% just is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. You know. yep. Yeah. Tom, do you want to go? Or you like yeah, me to go? I, I can go for him. Right. And that was, um, 
a couple of years ago, I I knew I've always heard of the American Chestnut Foundation. And I always thought those people are a little nutty. <laughs> they really <laughs> care about one plant so much. And then it was when I read that I, I started to learn a little bit more about the chestnut in between then and then when I heard read that book, The Overstory, and just again that connection to a plant through a story, although it's fiction. And then uh, that's when I really started diving a little bit more and and find out more about it and find out more about the research that was going on with Darling 58. And then, um, and then when I think it was Adriana, you approached Fran or sent Fran an email, um, saying that you listened to the podcast. I was like, Oh, this is someone we should probably have on and talk about this whole story. Cause it is just not only is it historically fascinating, it's like techno technologically fascinating, all the stuff that's going on and into it. Um, and then this is just by happenstance, but my wife had picked up, uh, like a reproduction print of um, like a 1756 drawing of the American chestnut, like with the leaf and, and nut and all that. So, uh, and then she didn't want it in our house anymore. She like redesigned our bedroom and said, Oh, I don't know where to put this. So Is you want to take it to work? So I put it on the wall right behind Fran's desk to kind of like manifest that chestnuts are going to become like a big staple of, uh, of the restoration nursery trade in, in decades to come. So uh, yeah, that's my final thought. I'll yeah. I'll share a picture with everyone of that. Maybe that can be the episode well, artwork. It, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> it is. We we're assuming it's an American chestnut. It doesn't say in the description. It, it just says the chestnut. Yeah, and we think it's the American chestnut because again, it was a just looking the at name the name on it was, was an American botanist from like the 1700s. I think it was 1776 yeah. where it was depicted. I don't even know it's a real drawing, but um, yeah. So we'll, we'll send you a picture. And make sure that it's it's right, and then maybe it'll be our episode artwork. But. All right. My final thought is I, I just want to show thanks for the generations of work and love and sweat that have gone into this process. To And, and we're, we're not done yet. Obviously, once they're released and, and you can purchase them, it's, it's getting them in the ground. It's getting them out there. It's getting them – higher than what a deer can browse, getting them established. And I just want everyone to at least appreciate that journey and enjoy it. I, I hope after all the hard work is done that that you have the opportunity to sit under a chestnut tree <laughs> and just appreciate it and know what it took to get that tree there for you to enjoy it. But with all the work, you have to enjoy it. You have to remember to enjoy it. So I always think about John McGee with that that message that what are you doing it for if you're not going to enjoy it. So I I wish that for the three of you. I, I hope that all of you get the the opportunity to see many chestnuts in the wild and enjoy them naturally and 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 reap the benefits of all the kind words. So and on that, I want to thank all of you for being here. Today. Yeah, so yeah, that's going to wrap us up. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, this is not the right script, so I have the wrong names in there. Friend. Oh, or no, you just didn't the change right them. Guy. For I just didn't yeah, change you them. Didn't for change you. Them. So Surprise! Wanna... <laughs> You're trying to embarrass me one more time. <laughs> no, not at all. I'd like to thank uh, Adriana, Sarah, and Eric for joining us today. Uh, we're going to put all of the links that they yes. shared with us in our show notes. So if you're interested in getting any more information about all the different aspects. Um, and learn a lot more about American chestnuts, you can visit those links. Um, and then, 
yeah, we want to thank everyone for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. We uh, would be wrong if we didn't acknowledge Andorra for contributing our theme music. So thank you. You can uh, stream or buy their songs wherever you consume music. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery, and Jay, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and also Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet. You can also find our videos on YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. You can call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. You can ask a question or leave a comment. And we will do our best to play it on a future episode of The Buzz. And if you enjoyed this episode and you want to talk about it, make sure you head over to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group because I'm sure the conversation is going to be going on over there. Yeah, so you can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet uh, at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. But you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcast. Do us a favor when you're there, if it's possible on that that platform like it is on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star view. That goes a really, really long way in getting more people to hear our podcast. And if you do a little write-up with that five-star view and just tell us how wonderful you think we are and how great our guests are and all that, then I give you a shout-out on our Buzz episodes, which is always a lot of fun for me to do. And uh, and you get to hear your – your uh, well, your, it's usually not their name. Handle. They put their little yeah. handle, and some people, I'm sure, yeah. forget what that is. But, um, but you get to, to feel a little pride that – you got a shout out because you made us feel good. Um, you can also buy Native Plants Healthy Planet, uh, Planet merch at that same website, and uh, it takes you to our Teespring store. We have a bunch of different designs up there, and um, and uh, we don't keep any of the profits from those shirts. We take that money, pull it up, and then uh, when it gets to like a lump sum that's big enough, we start giving it to organizations we feel are doing a really, really good job promoting and working with native plants. So uh, you're not only going to look cool in your, your new shirt or your new swag, you're going to also feel good that it's going to a good place. So with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Tom, what do you think about – we have a new shirt you designed a little bit ago, Plant plant American Plants. Yes. Yeah. How about all the proceeds of that go to the American chestnut? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. All right. Yeah. So buy a Plant American Plant shirt. And you'll be helping a great cause. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for joining us and all of you. Thank you for being here with us today. Next week we have a buzz episode, so make sure you tune in. And until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.